0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Nothing Ventured with me, Arish Shah. In today's episode, I had with me Zoltan Vardy. Uh, Zoltan is a startup mentor and angel investor who helps B2B tech founders struggling with sales to build predictable recurring revenues using his sales and marketing blueprint called The Launch Code. In today's episode, we talked about closing a half a billion dollar deal, cracking the corporate fortress, searching out deers instead of elephants, moving from local to global and schooling me on my value prop for Emerge One. This is a great episode for anyone who wants to understand how to build out their sales process. You are not going to want to miss it. Hello and welcome to this episode of Nothing Ventured with me, Arish Shah. Today with me, I have Zoltan Vardy via Zoom. Uh, Zoltan is a startup mentor and angel investor who helps B2B tech founders struggling with sales to build predictable recurring revenues using his sales and marketing blueprint called The Launch Code. Zoltan, really great to have you with me here today. And obviously for our listeners, they can catch up on a bit of your background and some of the tools that you're using on the primer episode, but really great to to have you here to have uh, a bit of a discussion about uh, how to how to build those sales uh, funnels.
1: Absolutely, Arisha, I'm looking forward to a great conversation.
0: Awesome, so let's get straight to it. You have closed $2 billion worth of deals over the course of your career, right? Uh, you must have some scars uh, equally. Uh, I'm <laughs> sure you have some some amazing war stories. What are the best and worst deal kind of processes or, or, or deals that you've experienced over the course of the, that career?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say you know if if you go with the assumption that the biggest is the best, which is not necessarily uh, true, but but I'd say it's certainly up there. Um, I closed a five hundred million dollar deal um, back in the late two thousands uh, when I was vice president of sales for SBS Broadcasting, which is a group of twenty four TV channels across nine markets in Europe, covering northern and central and eastern Europe. And there, I negotiated this deal with uh, one of the largest uh, media buying agencies called Group M. Uh, and it was a uh, a huge uh, process to coordinate the interests and align the interests of of nine different markets, pulling those all together and getting the deal over the line with a, a very a significant player in in the media space. So I'm very proud of that, just in terms of the actual size and the scale of it. Yeah, I have to say though that it's not my best deal because I think the best deal is also a function of where you feel like you took something. From uh, from concept to execution in a way that made a meaningful difference uh, to you as a as a company or potentially you as an individual. And I have to go back almost 20 years to when I started my first company. Um, we launched a. Uh, portal network. They were still portals at the time um, in the early 2000s, covering Central and Eastern Europe. We called it kind of the Yahoo of Central and Eastern Europe. And Mm so uh, it was a business called eEurope Media. And, you know, we were kind of early stage company and we were developing this business and we desperately needed a few big name customers to prove our position in the marketplace. And so uh, we approached Hewlett Packard, and learned that they were investing heavily into digital photography, which is at very early stages at that that time. And so we sat down with the manager director that ran that that part of the world, and we created a completely integrated solution, created a separate section on our portal where our visitors could upload their photos, basically revolutionary stuff for the time. Obviously, it's difficult in the context of (laughs) of today where everybody's got an entire photo studio in their pocket, but it was really unique. And I remember we were at the final stages of our negotiation going back and forth. And we sat down in the in a conference room to sort of have our final discussion. And, and I have to say, we really needed this deal, right? I mean, this is one of these things that would be something that that would be a, a, a great feather in our cap. And, you know, big logos, used tend to draw other big logos. And they were getting into the stage where they were really asking for a bunch of extra stuff that just didn't make sense. It was it was one of those things where they're trying to, you know, screw uh, that final screw in a little bit too tight. So it was this moment. I remember thinking to myself, it's like, look, um, I can do one of two things. I can give everything they want and walk out of here feeling like I got screwed, or I can stand up and regain my composure. Uh, And I actually stood up and I walked over to the other side of the table and looked the uh, managing director in the eye, who was probably 20 years my senior. And I said, look, you can either haggle for an extra 1%, or we can close this deal now and create a meaningful partnership. And he kind of looked up a little bit shocked. And he just stood up and he shook my hand. And he said, let's do it. And I remember walking out of the room, my heart rate was probably at like 200 sweating bullets. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and and, uh, and the, the 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 great part of the story is we ended up selling this company 18 months later, um, on the back of partly this deal because mm-hmm. of the relationship we created there and and also because of the, the brand name that we got. And so I think the lesson for me here is that the best deals are the ones where you feel like you really got the right value for what you're selling and that you were able to present a compelling argument for why what you're offering is is a is a meaningful solution to a meaningful problem and i think that's a that's a great lesson for me that i've taken with me in the in the subsequent 20 years
0: truly kind of win-win right like uh, where where everyone comes out of the room feeling they got exactly what they wanted uh, you know they they they're not sort of being pressured on price. They they feel like it's a fair deal. And yeah, I mean I I typically you know I personally don't like doing deals where it feels like any one of the parties within within that deal structure is losing out on something because it just will lead to antagonistic behaviour down the track and 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 all sorts of other stuff. And and what are some of the scars that you might have uh,
1: uh, carried with you over the last 20 years uh-huh. or so? Well, I would say that it's it's difficult for me to find a single moment or a single deal that I would consider sort of like a bad deal or a scarred moment. But I do want to reflect in exactly what you just said, which is that I think the deals that are the worst deals are the ones where you usually do them just for the money.
0: Mm.
1: Um, and what I mean by that is, of course, sales at the end of the day is judged on its ability to generate revenues, right? That's that's the That's the KPI. Having said that, so many times um, in my own career, and, and even in with the customers that I work with, um, I find that they do deals because they really need the money, and they end up regretting it, Yeah. right? So, so what usually happens, you reflected on this a moment ago, where, you know, there's antagonism, and there's maybe a bad personal relationship, maybe you've got a, uh, you know, a, um, a bee in your bonnet, and vice versa. And so there's, you know, a little bit of bad, bad blood there. But what's most important is that if you end up doing a deal, when they're unfavorable terms, or with something where you really have to do a lot of bespoke product development, the execution becomes a nightmare, mm-hmm. right? And, and it just turns into a much bigger problem. And what it does is it not only jeopardizes the, the the quality of the deal you just did, but it jeopardizes your ability to close other deals because you end up sucking out a bunch of time and resource to satisfy this one deal that you didn't really want to do uh, uh, instead of focusing on new business. And so I think for me, the the big lesson here is is if there's a deal there just doesn't feel right, I know the money is important, but you will literally regret it 99% of the time. So stand up, walk away, and look for better customers who are more appropriate for whatever you're selling
0: yeah I think walking away is an underrated uh, talent right say it's that art of getting to know maybe uh, rather than the art of getting to yes <laughs> and, and yeah I mean I I can you know I can think back over over the last 15 20 years you know very similarly where I've I've kicked myself for taking on a deal because it it felt good uh, you know, in terms of getting getting the cash in, but I knew it was going to be a nightmare dealing with 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 a client, uh, and unfortunately, more often than not, I've been proven right. Um, so let's uh, let's get on to kind of some of your uh, thoughts on on how to actually kind of build out that that sales process and so on. So look, dealing with enterprise customers is hard enough, right? We all know uh, kind of the lead times that it can take, the the amount of pressure that they put on, but for startups. Who have limited track records and ultimately limited resources as well it's even harder uh so you talk about cracking the corporate fortress right what are the key activities that startups and and founders should use to breach those corporate defenses if i
1: can put it that way Mm -hmm. well i think it starts first of all with understanding and what i mean by that is that when you're a startup your mindset is very much about speed Right. It's about moving things forward quickly. It's about uh, testing, breaking things, getting to yes quickly. Uh, when you're speaking to corporations, you are talking to people who have the polar opposite approach to business. The single most overwhelming principle of corporate decision making is certainty. Right. That is what is driving everything. What does that mean in practice? Scenario planning, you know, projects are, are budgeted. Um, decision making is slow. It's built on consensus people, you know, focus on internal politics, you know, their belief is that speed kills, mm. right? And I say this because I I run 1000 person organizations, I've worked in that matrix sort of organization where everybody's responsible for everything, but nobody makes a decision on anything. So I can speak from personal experience that, that that there is just generally a sense that that, you know, making a decision too quickly is is the bad thing. So the reason I emphasize this is because it's important that this clash of mindsets, is understood and accepted, because it's sort of like gravity, right? You can be really angry that, you know, the pen drops out of your hand, but that's just the way that life works, right? So that's, you just live with it. So that's the first thing. The second thing, um, and that's to manage expectations. The second thing is, I think you have to make sure that when you think about enterprise sales, you don't lump every company into the same basket. Not all corporations are created equal. There are certain characteristics of companies who are more likely to do business with early stage startups than others? Mm -hmm. What are some of those characteristics? First of all, I would look for what I would call companies that are deer rather than elephants. So elephants, of course, are the big lumbering animals, the market leaders, the ones who really don't have that much incentive to change, because they're already in a strong position. The deer are the ones who are second tier, maybe even third tier within their category. Who are much more limber, much more agile, are capable, and are willing to try new things because they have something to win, right? So they have something to gain. So what I'd say is look for deer um, rather than elephants. Um, focus on private companies rather than publicly traded companies. Why is that important? Because publicly traded companies work to quarterly results. Mm. They're not they're not prepared to take significant risk that is going to damage their public uh, uh, stock price. Um, look for companies that have a strong HQ or or central decision-making authority, and make sure you speak to those, and don't waste your time talking to subsidiaries who don't have the budget or the authority to uh, to say yes. Uh, And look for startup-friendly signs. Um, You know, there's a lot of companies that have corporate accelerators. They have corporate venture capital arms. um, They have maybe a head of innovation or you know relevant leadership role. These are all really um important signs that that company is better for you than others so if i had to kind of like create the perfect corporate customer challenge your position privately held headquartered decision maker and startup friendly element those are what i would think to, to to keep in mind as you target these type of customers
0: yeah and i think what's what's also super interesting to me is often you know when you're working with larger corporates the champion right that the the person who is actually going to use your product isn't necessarily going to be the person making that buying decision so how does one navigate like figuring out at what stage they should move up that chain of decision making because do you need that champion in place first presumably you do Uh, but then how do you get from the champion to the budget holder and, and and the decision maker thereafter
1: yeah, I think you make a great point. Finding that internal champion is a really critical hack or or, or, or element that you have to keep in mind as you go through this process. Um, I think that um, you have to spend a bit of time identif- identifying and building relationships with people who will help you manage you through the system. You know, they're like the shepherd, right? They're guiding you through that 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 uh, system. They help out, map out the decision making process. You know, the ideal champion is somebody who is a subject matter expert. So they understand the kind of the area that you're mm-hmm. coming from. They have the authority and the position of respect in the organization, and they sort of take part in senior level meetings. They're not necessarily the MD or the, the the top person, but they're sort of one level below. And so I think if you focus on identifying those relationships, you will be able to to get to yes more quickly. Um, the the challenge here is finding that person, obviously, and then building that relationship. And so this comes back to a little bit of what I said earlier, is that, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the process itself is not perfect, right? It's not like you can map it out and step by step, but, but you can do a couple of things to improve your chances. Um, the first thing you can do is solve a problem that matters. Mm. and And I often find this with early stage companies, is they're selling a a tool that frankly, in the grand scheme of things, isn't going to really have that much of a impact on the business, the painkiller versus vitamin kind of exactly, exactly. And and I think that if you if you think about the corporation as a decision making authority, you know, uh, uh, center, if they're going to go through the process of the pain that I just described, it's got to be something that's going to make an impact on their on their bottom line. And, you know, one of the areas I I work with a company, in the automotive space uh out of Poland I supported them uh and they were selling to big uh, factories uh that produce auto parts and they offered this this tool that had basically enabled companies these automotive manufacturers to to audit their factory processes more effectively and and as we when we first started talking about this with them, you know, they were really narrowing their focus on a very, very tiny piece of that process. And I said, look, for these companies to take you seriously, you got to offer something that's meaningful right and then we started adding certain elements and it actually turned out that he had all these elements he just wasn't packaging it correctly right and so i think that's that's what it comes down to is you have to make sure that you're 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 solving a problem that matters and the other thing you have to build credibility right so sitting in a corporate environment you know there's a, there's an old saying from the 1950s in the united states nobody ever got fired for buying by ibm <laughs> right and and i think that's part of the, the the challenge as a startup is you're not ibm right mm-hmm. you don't have that 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 logo that people remember so so basically you have to build credibility in other ways um that goes with how you pitch and package your presentation that matters you know it's got to be professional uh, that includes uh, introducing elements that show your past experience with corporations if you happen to have worked for a company um that has a brand name make sure that people know that because again it adds credibility um prove that you're here to stay prove that you're you're not a fly by night company going back to automotive you know most of the technology that they incorporate into automotive companies or or cars is is actually about seven years from deployment, right? It takes about seven years for an automobile to be actually deployed to the market. So imagine they don't want to do business with a the company they don't think it's going to be around yeah. because it's not one thing to deploy it. The other thing is after-sales service and all that stuff, right? So, so those are all the different things that are going to help you build credibility. Um, and that's why it's also important that you look for ways to work through partners who already have a relationship. So channel sales is a really important part of the corporate sales process. Looking for companies that already sell um, some sort of relevant product or service to your uh, target customer, leveraging their authority, their access, their presence, and using that to to get in in front of um, potential corporate customers is a, is a great way to to build credibility. Um, and to build your chance of success.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously sit on the finance side uh, in a lot of these businesses, and one of the questions we often get asked by larger com- corporates or incumbents, or uh, certainly even you know, we haven't talked about uh, state uh, uh, state-owned customers, right, quasi statals or anything mm-hmm. like that. But um, you know, one of the questions that's frequently asked is, you know, send us your balance sheet, your P and L, because uh, they want they want to have the comfort that you have got the cash and the cash flow and the and the stability to continue delivering the product or the service. Uh, over the long term, which you know is going to be challenging for for a startup. Yes, they may have investment. Yes, they may have a an okay balance sheet today. But you know, if it looks like there is a lack of strength in that balance sheet uh, on the horizon, then you know it's going to be that much harder yeah. uh, to sell in.
1: But I think if if you're talking to a company that's asking for your balance sheet, you're probably talking to the wrong company. Yeah, startup, I've, right?
0: I've I've got to yeah, I've got to say like often those are those are red flags on our side. Like you know you you will you will essentially just say well that client's going to be too hard to service. Yeah, that, exactly. And
1: for. and look, I think I think it goes back to what we talked about before about saying no, right? Yeah. Sometimes the success comes not from who you focus on who says yes, but who you don't speak to. Mm. You know that's what's going to help you focus your efforts on the customers who are most likely to be interested in what you're, you're saying. And, and that's actually one of the critical parts of, of the launch code is that you have to create a structured process to reach the customers who are most likely to say yes. And that comes with identifying extremely clear ideal client profile. Um, not just doing things like, well, you know, the number of employees and the revenues, but like, you know, what's their mentality? What have they demonstrated in terms of what's important to them? Are they more focused on quality or quantity? You know, are they do they have some, you know, association with sustainability or with some element of of modern culture that makes you a more compelling uh, customer for them or partner for them. So there's a lot of things you have to do there that that then is brought to life through the process of outbound sales and inbound marketing and partnerships.
0: Yeah, no, look, it makes a lot of sense. Um, So, you know, another big challenge is geographical expansion, um, especially for European companies trying to move into the U.S., uh, breaking ground uh, out there where, you know, we know uh, that it's it's easier or more likely that you're going to be able to acquire quality logos. And there's certainly more volume of those quality logos. So how should they think about moving from local to global?
1: Well, I'd split this into kind of planning and then execution. Um, on the planning side, I think it's really important that you find your focus. And this is something I talk a lot about to to about B2B tech founders is you you can't be everything to everybody because then you're nothing to nobody. Mm. You You need to be able to focus your efforts. And that goes to the the point about about, you know. What is it that you're actually focusing? So you're focusing your positioning, right? So, you know, you do your market research, look at competitive offerings in particular markets you're interested in entering. Is there some gap there that needs to be filled? Is there an underserved niche? Is there a geographic blind spot? Um, Is there a pricing position that you could fill, right? So think about your product, not just of I've got something to sell. It's like, okay, how can I position this in a way that's going to be compelling for this new, new audience. And that does, by the way, require sometimes you to revisit your value proposition, maybe your product offering, maybe even adjust your product somewhat to fit the market. Um once you've done that, then it's important to focus your market entry. Um and and I like to 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 um to support a kind of a three pronged approach. If you think about, you know, uh, uh, a military operation, it's like, you know, by land, air and sea, you know, it's outbound sales, it's partnerships, it's inbound marketing, you have to try to use all three of these tools to create a, a, a presence in that new market to to get your first couple of quick wins to get your first customers on board, and then to to build the business in the long term. That's kind of the planning element there, The 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 execution piece is is much more practical. My recommendation is pick three markets. Mm -hmm. So if you're let's say in the UK, and you want to expand into continental Europe, then use uh, various parameters. Um, It could be some research, it could be the competitive landscape, it could be some accessibility question of how strong your you know, your ability to actually enter the market is pick three markets. If you pick three markets that helps you first of all, focus this concept of internationalism into something that's more manageable, right? Because three is kind of a manageable number. Yeah. And it also gives you the opportunity to simultaneously start building insights and relationships in three markets, see where you get the best traction, and then start focusing your efforts on the markets where you're getting the most traction. And in my experience, because I've done this literally dozens of times, generally out of the three, one starts pulling ahead pretty quickly, one starts falling away pretty quickly, and then one is kind of there in the middle. So it, it just sort of tends to work that way, and then you put your efforts into the ones that's really working well, and 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 then and then you know put all your resources into making sure you do it well in that what market, and then repeat.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, there's a couple of things actually to dig into there. So we had <clears throat> a few weeks ago. Uh, Annalisa Dragish on you know she's a Series B to IPO investor and you know we talked mm-hmm. about uh, the difference between kind of earlier stage where it's all about uh, go to market uh, sorry um, uh, product market fit uh, but at later stage it's go to market fit right it's having that replicable playbook to be able to go out and execute yeah. in different territories but again you know to your point I, I guess often there is this um, you know approach by, by some founders where okay we're, we're just going to launch everywhere and and therefore yeah. don't launch anywhere Um, And and one of the questions I I guess I also have is, you know, how important is it to have boots on the ground in those locations as you are starting to enter? Like market penetration is, you know, tough at at the best of times. Is it made easier by having people on the ground or is it better to have that centralized until you figure out that playbook and then start deploying kind of sales agents out there um, down the track?
1: I would very much support doing distance selling until you've got your first few paying customers mm-hmm. um the the reality is is that as your as you're developing your business there's a constant shifting in messaging and ideal customer profile and and offering you know this concept of like i'm going to kind of create this one time it's gonna be perfect is, is just fantasy land. It's like, this it's constant iteration and you have to go through the pain of the iteration before you can then say to yourself, all right, I'm going to put a lot of resources into a local market to, to bring that to life. And let me give you a very specific example. So one of the companies I'm actually chairman of a company called Antavo, and I'm also an early stage investor in the company. It's basically an enterprise loyalty management platform. It, it, it works with um, large brands, global brands to create uh, loyalty programs, um, to uh you know a very experiential type of loyalty programs and so you know I've been with the company now in in certain capacities for almost 10 years and and it's built itself into a global company um you know with with customers in all across asia europe and, and north america and interestingly although the company's based in europe and actually in the uk um it has about seven or eight paying customers in the us but none of them were acquired by local presence they're all Acquired through some combination of outbound sales and inbound marketing and partnerships. And so right now with about seven or eight customers, we're able to close, you know, a, you know, meaningful business. Um, But we're just at the stage now where we're going to be putting some more investment. And that's, would be a big mistake to do that before you've got your first few customers, because you don't actually understand the problems you're solving. And let's be honest, it's also a function of your financial resources, right? If you've got Fifty million dollars in the bank. Yeah, you can put a lot of money into, let's say, entering the U.S. market, um, but just know that that money's going to burn through very quickly. And you, quite frankly, you might end up, um, you know, putting a lot of expensive effort before you've actually identified whether you've, you know, what your offer is exactly that's going to yield meaningful results.
0: Yeah. So there's <laughs> there's a couple of questions that comes out of that. Uh, um, uh, first question is, you know, uh, at early stages, especially. You know it's very important for the founder to be selling right as uh companies kind of move up um you know move up uh, in terms of the volume of customers etc how important is it and especially breaking into new markets how important is it for the founder to continue to be the main salesperson for the business or is it okay uh for them to you know palm that off to uh you know head of commercial or or, or cro or whoever it might be
1: yeah i would say that there's kind of a three-level process if you're starting out um, and you want to establish some sort of local presence, which I, by the way, believe that it has to happen at some stage, right? I don't think you can build a a global company with just, you know, one central location. Um, It's, you know, one of the nice things about this hybrid world in which we live in is that there's a whole range of people who are doing part-time roles and and in part-time consulting roles with various companies. There's a lot of people who you can kind of negotiate with or contract with, it'll represent you on a part time basis. So it's a relatively light touch. Yeah. Um, that's, I think, a good way to start. That person can either then turn into the second level, which is a full time employee, or employees, or you can find then somebody who's willing to commit 100% to your company. And so you can hire somebody full time. Um, And then I think there's the founder on the ground, right? Which is when you're actually, you got somebody there that's going to be um, representing the company. And let's be honest, the founder always is going to have much more credibility than an employee. It's just a natural, natural reaction. So I'd say I would go through those first steps. So having that part-time kind of consultant, external person, then going to full-time employee, then founder on the ground. The only alternative is if the founder is for personal reasons or cultural reasons, whatever, more than happy to, to move into that market first, you know, at the first go, that's fine. But, but not everybody can make that commitment. You know, I mean, that's not, that's a huge commitment. Depends, you know, just change in lifestyle. If you have family, I mean, there's a lot of things that you have yeah. to consider there. So, so I think that kind of three-step process is probably the smart way to do it.
0: Yeah. And, and, uh, I, I mean, I think again, as as you said, essential. Like, you know, founder is always going to be able to sell, hopefully, their product better than than an employee. They just have much more invested in making sure that sale happens. But equally, they can get overly fragmented if uh, yeah. you know if if they're trying to do that in in multiple markets. And the other yeah. thing I wanted to kind of pick up on, you know, you talked about, you know, if you've got fifty million in the bank, yes, you could you could throw money at it, but but you'll burn that burn through that very quickly. And actually, you and I talked when we first caught up. Um, you know about that sort of uh, issue that you know over the last ten years, there's been a lot of capital out there, and and often, you know, the the growth at all costs kind of mentality has led to money just literally being thrown uh, at marketing, especially, but but sales as well, yeah. and just assuming that okay, if I hire an extra five business development people, that'll lead to ten more leads, which will lead to x amount of of, of new business. But actually, the reality is that. You know often that isn't the case so now as capital has become tighter what sh- you know what can people think about uh in terms of what they have been doing in the past and what they should be doing now in terms of really efficiently using that capital
1: mm-hmm. well i think you make a very good point that the the world has changed um you know i saw a statistic recently uh ironically i think it was silicon valley bank that put out the research <laughs> which doesn't exist anymore but uh, it was recent uh they, I think that the numbers I remember seeing, or just at least uh, percentage wise, is that the total amount of invested capital in Q4 2021 versus the total amount of capital invested in Q4 2022, mm. there was a 60 percent. Yeah,
0: 63 percent, I think was another. Okay, yeah, yeah. so obviously you've seen the same research.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so obviously a, a tremendous amount of contraction in terms of available capital, and of course much lower valuations as well. So that's just the reality of the situation we know that look startup investing is cyclical right we're now in a downturn um i'm 100% certain that in 3 years nobody will remember the downturn other than it'll be in the history books but uh but you know that's kind of the situation so yeah you've got to react to that so i think you know for instance again at Otavo, uh you know we're very much focused on making sure that we're deploying capital in the po- most efficient way possible and obviously in this case this means some cost cutting and you know a lot of companies overhired when they yeah. when they were in this big boom so you, I mean, you read all these tech companies letting go of thousands of thousands of employees which of course is not fun or, or great but it's the reality of the business um so i think that there is a there's a cost management element here that i think needs to needs to be considered the second element is it requires you to focus your efforts on the clients who are most likely to convert and i think that's a really important um principle right because you know, with money, you sort of get this additional resources, and then you sometimes start shooting and throwing darts in all sorts of different directions. Uh, the spray and pray again and less qualified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so maybe on. we should do this. And yeah. so, what we've done is we've really focused in on the categories. Um, like retail has traditionally been a very strong uh, part of Ontario's uh, business. So, the retail sector, uh, fashion, uh, you know, we're going to the customers that are most likely to be interested in what we're saying, what we have to say. And so, I think that that's a really important. Um, element that comes out of this is once you have less money to spend, you have to focus more, which by the way, is a great thing, because you can have five salespeople uh, out there in the market. But if they're saying the wrong things, and they're saying it to the wrong people, it doesn't matter. You know, so that's why I, I, I emphasize so much in the launch code, the importance of focusing your offer a message, right? That's pillar one. And the reason I say that is because in this extremely tech driven tool driven mentality, people forget at the end of the day, people Buy from people. People, you know, yeah. they're buying. Yeah, yeah, and and you have to have an extremely clear value proposition. And you know, my standard of sentence is, in one sentence, tell me what problem you solve for who and why you're better than the competition. And you better say it so that a twelve year old understands. So,
0: so you know. let let's just try that for a second, right? So it's taken me a while to figure out figure out how to, uh, how to vocalize my value prop, um, in, in Uh exactly that way. Right. So my, my value proposition today is, um, you know, we are a consultancy that provides fractional CFO support to venture backed tech startups and scale ups. Done. Okay. That's it. Uh,
1: Okay. So say that slowly for me.
0: So we are a consultancy that provides fractional CFO support to venture backed tech startups and scale ups.
1: Okay. So what I'm missing there is what's your key benefit and what's your competitive advantage. So I understand what you're offering. Yeah. Why, why is that good for me as a, as a, uh, target customer?
0: So, so why it's good for you is that, you know, we're able to better manage your runway ensure that you can scale efficiently. uh, And, and again, let's face it in the current environment, you know, you need to know your numbers.
1: Okay. So what you're saying is if I'm a venture backed, uh, company or, you know, what you're helping me do is manage. And deploy capital more efficiently. Correct. Yeah. Okay. okay well, that, and, and, that
0: that's going to go on the back end of that sentence now. Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. And and then what is it that you're doing differently than everybody else?
0: Uh it's just the experience that our CFOs have.
1: Okay. Do you have a special system or a special approach or special insight that you use?
0: So this is the interesting thing, I guess, with our with our with the sort of service that we offer. All too often, many people have have kind of taken a cookie. A, cookie cutter approach. Our approach is that there is no cookie cutter, right? When you're working with startups, because every single business that we work with is different. And I think this is why it's difficult to kind of succinctly uh, put out that value proposition, um, you know, in, 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 in a sense, cause we're not just targeting econ businesses or SaaS businesses. You know, we work across biotech, medical devices, AI, SaaS platforms, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, uh, you know, so that differentiating factor is that we are flexible and, you know, we, we understand a variety of, of different, uh, different models. So,
1: so, so I would say first a comment and then a suggestion. The comment is I think one of the, the misconceptions about tailoring your offer is that that's helps you to provide a better solution to your customers. Sure. I disagree with that. If you provide a blank slate to target customers and say, Hey, we can do anything. What you're actually doing is you're giving them the job of figuring out what they need. Yeah, what they need. Yeah, you're much better off identifying three very specific offers. Mm -hmm. These offers could be packaged as, um, as you know, entry level, standard level, premium level. They could be independent from each other, or they could be uh, built on each other. In other words, you have to do step one to do step two to step three. Uh, You can do, you know, if you get this package, you get, you know, you have additional features in second one, third one. What you're doing there is you're giving them a framework for decision making. Mm. And you're saying to them, look, here are three different options. Now, a majority of people, in fact roughly about 80% of people will always choose the middle option. Yeah. Not too hot, not too cold, just right, right from Goldilocks. Mm-hmm. They choose the middle option. So make that middle option your best balance of value to price and cost. Yeah. And then make the entry level some one that gives you almost as much value as the middle one for a not sorry, as for a slightly slightly less cost, mm. and make the premium one really all the bells and whistles, because there's some people that just want the best. And what you're doing with that is you're actually pushing people in a good way to choose the middle option. And I'm 100% certain that if you put a little bit of digging into your service, you would identify the typical problems that you're solving. And you could put those into various packages. Um, and and give people a little bit more context of what they can decide. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and what you're doing then is you're speeding up the decision-making process because what you're doing is you're giving them a tool to help them make a better decision. So this is actually the second module of the launch code. It's product offering. It's creating uh, uh, three options that help people make decisions more quickly. Say, what I like to say, they say, uh, say yes more easily, right? Now, to your specific situation, here's what I would say. So obviously, not memorizing every single word, no, but I would cool. say, you're a consultancy that helps venture-backed tech companies um, manage and deploy their cap their finances more effectively by providing them with fractional CFOs uh, targeted to their specific business niche.
0: Got it. Thank you. Well, that was a that was a a, a free a free free lesson for me. And apologies to exactly. the listeners who had to <laughs> who had to suffer through. Well, but it's through, a good it's a good my, example, a good of example how, right? How was. Exactly. And and to be honest, you know, over the last several years, trying to even getting to that first value prop that I said um, said right at the start, you know, has taken that time for me to actually to uh, absolutely. to to, absolutely. to narrow it down. And and that's only through, and I think this is your point, right? Only once you have worked with and understood, you know why your clients are buying for you why your customers are buying from you that you can actually just succinct, succinctly get that value proposition out there right uh, yeah and
1: by the way that the process you go through is painful but necessary yeah and second it goes towards focus right so whatever you think you're providing at the beginning what you ultimately will provide at the end will be some niche element of what you thought originally yeah and and, and that's the process and and if i think about my own journey in this current role, you know, look, I was CEO of a 1000 person organization, you know, I consider myself a pretty good manager. At the same time, I spent 20 years in sales, right? So I've got a lot of skills that I could sell. At the beginning, I was saying, you know, I'll help you build your business and like, okay, that's great. Well, what, do you what does that mean do for me? Yeah, yeah, what does that mean? Right? And then I realized, okay, well, actually, sales is what I'm really, really, really good at. And actually, that's what these guys really need. You know, I, at the beginning, I was thinking, well, I could st- work with small businesses, I could work with with uh, startups what I learned is the small businesses have a very different mindset than startups. Startups yeah. think global. They're, they're usually service technology driven. They want to scale quickly. Right. So there's, so I eliminated this, the, the small business part of it. I really focus on startups. Now I'm realizing that actually this tech startups I work for and the ones that I, I support best are run by founders who are product led tech guys mm. and not commercially focused. Mm. Why? Because they're the ones that are struggling with sales. Yeah, they're course. the ones that really, really need a blueprint to figure out how to make, sales and marketing work because for them, it's voodoo. In fact, it's the funniest thing. I just had a mentoring session with one of my clients. And we we're doing, a, we we're just finishing up our program. And I was asked for very detailed feedback. And the way he said, he said, uh, you know, f- up until I started this program, I thought sales and marketing was some sort of voodoo. And, and now I understand it's actually a very structured, processed approach, which I can implement, which is great, because these guys generally tech people are yeah. very process driven. Right? Yeah. so, so so I think just through my own experience, I can tell you that, that You will likely do something, a much more narrow niche of what you're doing now as you progress because you realize more and more that just because somebody can use your service and would benefit from your service doesn't mean they should use your service. You've got to be the perfect solution to one narrow niche rather than a decent solution for many people.
0: Yeah. No, I think that makes a a lot of sense. And it, it, again, it comes back to trying to be all things, to all people versus doing one thing really, really well. And I think a lot of founders, a lot of tech businesses that I've worked with kind of suffer from that. Oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to launch this product, this feature, we're going to add on this, we're going to provide this service on top. And then actually ultimately, you know, they they struggle to actually uh, figure out not only what their product therefore is, but also who their ideal customer is. Right. And, and, and they get caught in this kind of, um, Yeah, Yeah.
1: And, And you know what it's because one of the first customers i worked with is a company um that is in the area of social media analytics so they they basically analyze literally millions and millions of social media and digital conversations and they draw conclusions as to what people think about a certain product or a certain certain service. And I remember these guys had been around almost three years when I started working with them. And so at that stage, I was thinking, okay, well, they'll have their ducks in the row. And it was really interesting as we got more and more involved in the process, how much they hadn't clarified their value proposition, how much they hadn't clarified their product offering. And so what was going on was that it was a very frustrating environment, because for the exact reasons you just described, the product development wasn't focused because they didn't know what problem they were solving. You know their organization was misaligned because there wasn't a clear idea of what everybody's doing like what how they're contributing so getting this focused offer message is not just about sales it's actually about the entire business because what happens is once you get that right and i by the way i experience this all the time when we go through the process we get that one sentence right and it resonates and they feel it literally physically my clients like relax you know their their shoulders drop they start smiling and they're like ah oh, i finally understand what we're doing And it's a really um, invigorating experience because you really see that this is not just about you know offering a business solution. It's like you're making people's lives better because they just like they're more comfortable. It's like comfort and clarity is what they experience.
0: Well, I mean, and you know, as I say on a regular basis, revenue is the best form of capital, right? Like it is, you know, and and is the cheapest, right? So if you yeah, can absolutely. if you can get to your get get your business to a place where, to your point, you have recurring revenue uh, and and predictable revenue, then you can plan. And if you can plan, you can build of your course. business uh, yeah. well. And and I and I think that you know certainly at startup level um you know the the earlier uh on in life your business is the hardest thing to do is planning right the the and yeah, so exactly. the more certainty you can give give to that process the better look zoltan it's been it's been amazing uh talking to you so far so just as we kind of wrap up um obviously the podcast is called nothing ventured it's it's about you know taking taking that first step backing yourself 2023 as you mentioned earlier has been challenging to say the least, right? The back end of 2022 and coming into 2023. But for founders of B2B ventures uh, out there who may be listening to the pod, you know what is the most critical thing that they should be doing today to set themselves up for success when, when we talk about sales?
1: I'd say focus your efforts on the customers who are most likely to be interested in what you're offering so don't fall into the trap of just spraying and praying and getting out there and being in front of many people because you're thinking uh you know i need more customers and i need to i need i need i need volume you know really focus your limited resources on the ones that are most likely to say yes dig deep into those understand your customer understand their problems and provide a meaningful solution to a meaningful problem and that's going to get you through these difficult times and parenthetically make sure you manage your cash uh, carefully because at the end of the day um you're you're useless if you don't if you're cashless.
0: Yeah. And 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 of course that's where we come into <laughs> into the <laughs> into the picture but, it, but you know and, it, a- and again presumably to your point right if you are talking to your customer, and again I mean I've made this mistake uh, you know <laughs> not many times but I have made this mistake you know building the product that you think your customers want rather than uh building a product that your customers absolutely need right like and that is one yeah. of the big problems that i think a lot of founders um you know certainly 1st time founders will will always make right they'll they'll go out yeah. with an idea they have a you know a really strong perception and conviction around what they're building because it's a pain that they've suffered but they haven't necessarily gone out and and, and figured out is anyone else really suffering from from that same pain is it something that you know that yeah. they would then buy right
1: yeah absolutely
0: absolutely um, Zoltan, it's been absolutely wonderful having you uh, here today. I, I, I've learned a lot. I hope our listeners have, have too. Um, for our uh, our listeners, where's the best place uh, for them to find you online? Uh, clearly, you're on LinkedIn. Are you on Twitter? Where's Where's the best place for them to come looking right. for you?
1: So anybody can find me on, on uh, LinkedIn, obviously, just under my name. Um, I, I would love to connect with business to business tech founders who who are struggling with sales, who have that challenge, who want to build predictable recurring revenues, because that's basically what I do. Um, and I actually want to make a special offer to to your, to your listeners. Uh, you know, I mentioned several times this, this value proposition, the importance of the value proposition. So I've actually created sort of a five-step process to create that single sentence that we just tried to do kind of off the cuff. Yeah. And it's the lowest hanging fruit. It's where you actually ex- experienced immediate results. And I want to share this process uh, with your listeners. So if they just go to slash podcast. That's ZoltanVardy.com, my name, slash podcast. They can access this free value proposition video guide. It's a 30-minute video and a worksheet that they can use to create their own value proposition. If it's something that they find value in and they want to have a follow-up conversation, they can reach out to me uh, through the, the, the website and through LinkedIn, and I'd be happy to have a chat with them.
0: Amazing. Well, look, I, I'll be checking out, uh, <laughs> checking out that free tool, uh, myself and give my, give myself a bit of homework, but look, Zoltan, okay. it's been absolutely uh, wonderful having you here today. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.